good morning, Stony Brook Fellowship. It's good to be with you here this morning. Um, and now, uh, for those of you who don't know, has been said, I am your pastor Andrew's father. The mystery of why we share the same last name has now been unveiled. So yes, it is true. Somebody reminded me this morning that this was my opportunity to get back at Andrew for all the things that he said about me in times past. And, uh, you know, I thought about that a little bit, and I thought, you know, he's up here a lot more than I'm going to be. He, got, he has a lot of opportunities for revenge, so I'm not even going to get into that. But uh, we're, uh, you know, as parents, we're always wanting our children to find the thing that God has made them for and to engage in it and to be able to excel in that, right? And I am so pleased that Andrew has chosen to become a pastor and to see how you as a church have also embraced him as, the, as your pastor. I'm just delighted by that. I just want to say that uh, you're, th- this is a good fit for both you and the church, for both you and for them, and I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity. So thanks also for allowing me to speak this morning, and uh, pray that God will use these words to in, encourage us and strengthen us in our faith. It was about 100 years ago, that there was a man named Robert Ripley. And he began publishing a cartoon once a week in a newspaper. And it would describe these bizarre events and items so strange and unusual that readers, you know, would question whether or not these claims were true or not. The strip became known as Ripley's Believe It or Not. And it would also appear on radio, film, television. And in 1933... Robert Ripley gathered a lot of his assortment of these artifacts at the time and presented them at the Chicago's World's Fair. And later on, this eventually turned into museums, which were referred to as auditoriums, uh, ODD, auditoriums, because the artifacts were so odd and strange. And Ripley and his team of researchers insisted that every fact that was reported was true. And his, <clears throat> although some of them since then have been proven false, most have in fact been true throughout the years. Yet regular people like you and me, we'd have a hard time believing all the facts and stories that were reported by Ripley. Now I'm just wondering, what if he had lived in the first century and if he had been around during the time of Christ's death and resurrection? Would he have investigated that story? Would he have gone deep and found out all the facts related to that and presented it as a fact? Jesus has risen from the dead. Believe it or not. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a story that kind of examines that whole aspect. Two people on the road to Emmaus. And although this now is a week since Easter, the events that we're looking at today actually took place on the same day as Jesus' resurrection. Now, you might well wonder, what was Jesus doing for that full day on his resurrection? We have little snippets of information about things that he was doing, but we don't really know much about what he was involved with. But we do have this story about him walking together on the road to Emmaus with these two. Two people walking on the road to Emmaus, a distance of about seven miles. And that's a pretty hefty walk. I like to walk, and sometimes if I'm going for a long walk, I might do three, maybe four miles. This was seven miles. And while they're on the way, they're discussing the events of the Passover weekend. Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, and then this strange report 
that his tomb may in fact be empty. They are perplexed, saddened, curious, questioning. But obviously this is a topic that is of great relevance and importance to them because they're talking about it intensively. Why were they going to Emmaus? Well, we're not sure. Uh, This may have been a husband and wife or it may have been two men. We don't know. But they're walking on the road to Emmaus. Perhaps they were going back because it was after the Passover weekend and they were going home or whatever. But we don't know. But they were on their way. And suddenly, there's a man walking beside them and asking them questions about this discussion. And the man is Jesus himself. But they can't recognize him. Now, I'm imagining that Luke had a good time telling this story when he wrote it down for his readers, right? Describing the interaction between Jesus and these two people on the road. And we have the benefit of hindsight. We know how the story ends. We know the full picture. But at this time, these two people, they were living it in real time. And at one point, Jesus very pointedly challenges them. He says, you foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote about in scriptures. Jesus was focused in on their lack of belief, the key to their understanding. So let's read this story together from Luke. And it's in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 27. Turn in your Bibles if you have them. Luke 24, 13 to 27. Now that same day, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor in Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these last days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you so much for this story. This story of two people walking on the road and learning from Jesus about how to believe. And I pray that as we 
look into the details of this story a little bit this morning, that you will encourage us, that you will open our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears and help us to enliven our hearts to hear what you have to say this morning. Take the words of this message and use them to bring honor and glory to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I want to come back to that important verse in this, the rebuke that Jesus has for these two people walking on the road. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I want to to just start by saying belief is important. It's important to believe. And Jesus is focusing in on the importance of believing what the prophets have spoken about the Messiah. And he rightly identifies that these two people have been slow to believe. So why is believing so important? Later on, Paul writes in Romans, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus himself, in John verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 29, he says, do you want to know what the work of God is? The work of God is this, to believe the one he has sent. And later on, John, writing about this epistle that he's written, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Belief is essential to becoming a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and that's why we're often referred to as believers. The two men walking, or the two people walking on the road to Emmaus, seemed to want to believe. They were genuinely trying to make sense out of the events of the past several days, but they just weren't able to connect all the dots and come to a full understanding. I think that Jesus understood this also, and that's why he did not call them unbelievers, but he called them slow of heart to believe. Some people can be presented with the truth of the gospel, can't they? And they won't believe right away. They may not fully believe. It maybe takes some time because they're slow of heart. And yet, uh, even though belief is important, there's another important aspect of belief as well. And that is that belief impacts the way we live. What you believe makes a difference in how you live. But sometimes there's barriers to our belief. Things that prevent us from fully believing completely. And in this story, I want to focus in on three different barriers to belief that that these people experienced. The first barrier is the barrier of skepticism. Skepticism about the resurrection of Jesus. In this passage, we see that the two are discussing the report of the women, but they don't immediately acknowledge that the report is true. They're amazed by it, but they don't quite believe it. They're skeptical. They're exercising a healthy amount of skepticism. Can these events actually be true as they are reported? Now, it must have been very difficult for them, you can imagine, to believe that this report was true, that Jesus, who they had seen tried and tortured and and crucified, and laid in a tomb, that he was actually alive? We simply don't expect that people who are put to death will suddenly again be walking among us on this earth alive and well. That's just not something we expect. So they were skeptical. Now, I have to 
disclose fully here. I'm a person who's a skeptic. I don't like to believe everything just on the face value. In fact, this was something that Brenda and I had discussions about many times. She would hear some great story about a miraculous healing or some other event, and she would be all excited, and I would say, well, you know, I'd like a little bit more information. I'd like to know whether the details, and she'd say, why can't you just believe? So, yes, I'm a skeptic, but I do need to tell you that on this matter of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and his coming again, I am fully committed. I've made up my mind a long time ago. I believe completely and absolutely Jesus is alive. You see, for the early church, the resurrection of Jesus was central to their teaching and their belief. And it was a dividing point between those who were a part of the of the church, the genuine followers of Jesus, and those who were just pretenders. When Paul was in Athens, he taught about the one true God because there was many gods all around him. And he ended with this statement that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Well, when he said that, the Athenians scoffed. They said, come on, you can't be serious. But some of them wanted to hear more. And in this great chapter, on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul challenges those who say there's no resurrection of the dead. He says this, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Resurrection, the belief in the resurrection was central to the early church. Now, all this is not to say that we shouldn't be skeptical. A healthy amount of skepticism can be good. In Acts 17, we're reminded about the Berean Jews, and it says that they were of more noble character than others, for they received the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Skepticism could be good if it is practiced alongside openness and investigation that leads to understanding. There's no shortage of people who over the years have tried to disprove the resurrection, the gospel message. And Lee Strobel was one such man. He was an investigative journalist with the Chicago Tribune, and he was an avowed atheist. And he was tired of hearing the stories about the resurrection. So he set out to disprove the Christian faith, and he quickly discerned that if he could disprove the resurrection, it would destroy the Christian faith. Well, even Lee himself must have been surprised when he discovered that the historical evidence that was in support of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was overwhelmingly supportive of the facts. The end result of his investigation was that he committed his life to Christ. And he wrote about his findings in a book called The Case for Christ. So, taken alone, skepticism is not necessarily unhealthy, but we need to be open-hearted and allow God to teach us, and he will reward our faith. That's one barrier. But there's another barrier that I want to talk about today. And that's the barrier of supposition or supposing what is supposed to happen. Or another way of putting it is unmet expectations. Again, looking at verse 21, this two people walking on the road expressed to Jesus about their sorrow over the difference between what they supposed was going to happen and what actually happened. They said this, we were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
Their understanding was that Jesus would bring about the physical and political freedom of Israel from the stranglehold of the Roman Empire. Now, in fact, Jesus' ministry of his death, burial, and resurrection were intended to bring about the redemption, not only of Israel, but of the entire human race, every tribe, nation, language, and and race. However, their understanding of how this was to happen was clouded because of their myopia. They couldn't see the full picture. They They had an undeveloped and not fully formed view of the ministry of Jesus. They understood the broad strokes. They had some things correct, but they were filling in the details of the way they thought it was best instead of allowing God to add the details as he saw fit. Now, unless we get too critical of these two people walking on the road with Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, do we sometimes have improper expectations of God? Are we guilty of cherry-picking some verses from Scripture to form an incomplete view of Jesus' plan for our life. Maybe we think that our life should be easy once we make the decision to follow Jesus and that any hardships will simply slide off our backs. Or perhaps we have the expectation that Jesus is going to give us that really good job that we've been hoping for. Or a wonderful marriage. Or success in some venture that we're engaged in. But are we willing to submit our expectations to Jesus and to allow him to fill in the details as he sees fit, as he directs us, and as he knows best? But how do we gain this proper understanding of God's expectations? I'm glad you asked. That's an excellent question. Jesus gently but firmly helps helps the two people on the road to Emmaus to get a proper view of God's expectations by showing them from Scripture. He says this, beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he explained to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. The antidote for an underdeveloped understanding of of expectations is to dive into God's Word and to learn from him. We need to develop a culture of understanding the entirety of Scripture and not just one or two verses that appeal to us. Are we willing to commit to a regimen of daily Scripture reading and honest introspection, reflection on what God is asking of us? This is how we can avoid the barrier of supposition or unmet expectations. But before we leave that topic... Just a quick question. What did Jesus actually teach these people on the road to Emmaus? It would have been amazing, wouldn't it? To have been on that road with them. To have heard the things that Jesus was teaching them about as he's walking with them. Here's some possibilities of the things that he might have talked about. He probably referred back, because he started with Moses, he referred back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 where it says, and I will put enmity. This is the curse on Satan. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Even at the very outset, the promised Messiah was going to crush Satan. 
but it would be at the expense of some suffering on his own. In Genesis 12, we have the call of Abraham and the promise that all peoples of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. That's a messianic promise as well. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And that was extended to later on to, uh, to, to Isaac and to Jacob and to the people of Israel. In the latter part of uh, in Genesis 22, God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And Abraham obeyed. And as they're walking up to the mountain for the sacrifice, Isaac says to Abraham, Father, we have the, f- the fire and we have the wood, but where is the lamb? And Abraham said, Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb. And he did. He provided the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world in Jesus. In the later part of Genesis, we have the story of Joseph. Joseph suffered horribly from his brothers and was sent into captivity in Egypt, where he was wrongly sent into prison. And then at the end, when he was able to confront his brothers, here's what he said. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Another messianic promise that God would... that. The harm that was done, it was intended for harm, but the good that was accomplished was the saving of many lives. We move into the book of Exodus. We see the story of the Passover lamb and how the blood of the lamb was able to save those who believed. In Leviticus, we see the scapegoat that is presented as the only way of atonement. And in fact, every book in the Old Testament would have some reference or promise of the Messiah. And Jesus probably would have expounded on each one of these. And we don't have time to look at them all today. But there's two that I think are noteworthy that I'll give you for extra credit after, uh, during the afternoon while you take, before you take your nap. Two of them are this. Uh, Psalm 22, which was read here on Good Friday. Psalm 22, pa- this passage highlights the agony that Jesus suffered on the cross. And when you read it, you think that's describing almost to a T the details of the events that happened on Good Friday. And then there's Isaiah 53, which depicts the Messiah as the suffering servant. I'd love to read that whole passage for you now. And just Jesus would have certainly referred back to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 and showed how he was the response, the answer, the fulfillment of all the prophecies that were said about the Messiah in that passage. So that is the barrier of supposition. But there's one more barrier I'd like to talk about this morning, and that's the barrier of suffering. Suffering precedes glory. There is this other barrier that can prevent us from fully believing in God, in Jesus, as God intended. And it's related to this barrier of unmet expectations, but it stands alone because of its importance to the Christian experience. It's the barrier of suffering with Jesus. Notice in the passage that Jesus explains to the two people as they're walking. Did not the Christ need to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? One interesting aside here, we note that when the two describe Jesus initially, when he's asking them, what things are you talking about? They refer to him as a prophet. But when Jesus is responding to them, he talks about himself as the Messiah or the Christ. 
did not the Christ need to suffer these things? So they did not have a proper full understanding of the ministry of Jesus. But Jesus is our example in suffering. This suffering before glory is repeated again in the magnificent worship poem of Paul in his letter to the Philippians. He says it this way in Philippians 2. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul not only acknowledges Christ's suffering, but he insists that every Christian should also participate in the same kind of suffering that Jesus did. Because just a few verses later in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul is someone who has had firsthand experience in suffering for Jesus. He's experienced imprisonment, beatings, being stoned and left for dead, accusations made against him, hunger, thirst, shipwreck, fleeing for his life, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger everywhere. But Paul knew this secret, that suffering precedes glory. And you cannot know Christ fully until you have experienced suffering for him. And he also acknowledged that the glory belongs to God, not to us. But you might ask, do I need to suffer in the same way that Paul was suffering? Do I have to go through all of those kinds of things? Well, for some Christians in our world today, the answer is yes. There are some people who are suffering these same kinds of persecution. We at the EMC office have been promoting the sponsorship of Afghan Christian refugees. These are people that have made the decision to follow Jesus, even though they don't come from a Christian heritage, they come from a different faith. And they are first-generation believers. But the cost to them for making the decision to follow Jesus is huge. They've lost their homes, their livelihoods, their families, and they are being persecuted by their fellow Afghans, all this because of their allegiance to Jesus. But that's a few people, maybe more than we would like to think, not in our free and democratic society here in Canada. So what does suffering look like here in Canada today in our times? Let me just cite a few examples from Scripture. First of all, suffering is bearing the burdens of our fellow brothers and sisters who are also suffering. As 1 Corinthians puts it in 1 Corinthians 12, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. We can learn about the experiences of those believers who are suffering for their faith, those who are being persecuted. We can 
think about their suffering. We can pray for them. We can do what we can to alleviate that suffering. And in such a way, we can bear part of the burden and suffer with them. Another way that we can suffer is remaining faithful when we are tempted. Hebrews 2.18 says, Because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted as well. When you face temptation, if you give into it, no suffering is involved. But if, when you face temptation, you resist and you rely on the Holy Spirit's power, then you can be suffering by being faithful when you're tempted. There's also suffering that is a part of patient endurance under trying circumstances. And this could be a chronic illness, difficult relationships, loneliness, anything at all that you find to be a very difficult situation in your life. First, 2 Corinthians 1.6 says, If we are distressed, Paul is talking, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Another type of suffering is at the cost of doing the right thing. 1 Peter 2.20 says, But if you suffer for doing good, and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So others may be able to cheat on their tests or cheat on their taxes or do business inappropriately or whatever. But as Christians, we do the right thing and sometimes at a cost. And that is a form of suffering. And yes, there may be times when we are called upon to suffer persecution, ridicule, loss of things, similar to what Paul experienced. And he says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3, Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Don't let the barrier of suffering prevent you from believing fully in Jesus. So, at the outset of this message, we examined the importance of belief as a foundation for the follower of Jesus. But notice that this entire story is a theme of a journey. Two people walking on the road to Emmaus who were on a journey. But they were also on a journey of belief. They were struggling with their belief. And thankfully, Jesus was there on hand to guide them. But notice that Jesus did not condemn them for for their unbelief. Rather, he chided them for being slow of heart to believe. Jesus recognized that these two people were at the beginning stages of their journey of belief, and he was encouraging them along the way. And I suspect that we're not unlike those two people. We're also on a journey of belief, and we may be at various stages within that journey. And maybe you're someone here who has never taken the first step on that journey. You've never made the decision to follow Jesus. You just haven't found that you can believe this. I want to encourage you today. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God, that he's the person who was sacrificed for our sins. He was raised on the third day, and he is coming again. You will never regret making the decision to believe in Jesus. 
But maybe you're somebody who's been on that journey for a long time. And perhaps there's something that God is convicting you of today to take another important step in the journey of your belief. Don't let the three barriers, the barrier of skepticism, the barrier of supposition, and the barrier of suffering, don't let those barriers prevent you from taking the next step on your journey of belief today. Amen.